Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we are humbled to be in your presence. You hold the world in your hands, but you saw fit to call even the worst sinners to yourself. In this, your steadfast love and mercy are on full display, that you would save us by the blood of your only son, Jesus. Yahweh, you indeed are good to all. You have given all the opportunity to choose life in your name. You have given us access to the bread of life, to streams of living water. The only appropriate response is for us to bend our knee to you as king and to bless your holy name. As we take your yoke upon us, as we pick up our cross and follow you, as we share in the sufferings of our Savior, would you please fulfill your promises to us? May your yoke be easy, may our burdens be light, and may we find rest in you for our weary souls. Who in the heavens is like you, God? You see us in our frustrations. Give us hope for a future with you. You see us in our doubts. Give us faith in you and your promises. You see us in our transgression. Give us hearts that are quick to repent. You see us in our sadness. Give us peace as we lay our burdens at your feet. We pray, Lord, for our leaders. We pray for Mayor Bennett. We pray for Congressman Schrader and Senators Merkley and Wyden. We pray for Governor Brown. We pray for President Biden and his cabinet. We ask, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would acknowledge you as king and lead our country, our state, and our city in a way that reflects your good order, that creation may rejoice in your glory. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would guide us into all truth, that you would convict us of sin and righteousness, and that you would unite us with the body of Christ, specifically here in our local church, but also with those around the world. Father, we pray for Canby Christian Church and Pastor Adam Adam and the congregation there. As they study your word and fellowship with each other this morning, would you guide them into truth and unity? We pray also the same for all the pastors, especially in the north part of Burkina Faso. As they teach your word and live lives of humble service, would you guide them and their congregants into truth and unity, even in the face of persecution? Holy Spirit, help us as we pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Help us to continue in fighting the good fight of faith. In the name of the blessed and only sovereign, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. Thanks, Tyler. You can open your Bibles to the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be finishing off our study in 1 Timothy this morning. How many of you remember the time when you learned how to drive? Anybody? Yeah. Some of you just had a look of horror on your face. My parents were very generous to me, and they purchased me driving lessons. And I don't remember much from these lessons because most of it's become muscle memory by this point, but the one lesson that sticks with me and that I remember vividly is the lesson where my instructor told me early on that the best way to be safe when driving is to look down the road to where you are going rather than right in front of your car's hood. 
Now, I guess it was my tendency and maybe the tendency of others to look immediately in front of the car when driving to make sure that you were staying within the lanes. You remember how scary that was, trying to stay within those lanes, right? The interesting thing about looking down the road, though, is that it helps you stay safe and anticipate oncoming issues with enough time to wrestle with them and deal with them and figure out what to do, while at the same time, your eyes automatically still keep you well within the lane lines directly in front of you. That's how your eyes and your brain work. Now, this is vivid in my memory because it was impactful information at the time, but more so because it was difficult for me. There was something in my brain that insisted that it wasn't going to work, and so every time during that lesson that I looked down the road, all of a sudden I found myself, my eyes getting pulled to what was immediately in front of the car, and it made me feel safe in the immediate, but after hearing her suggestion, I realized quickly how dangerous it was to not have an eye on what lies ahead. And in our closing section here in first, the first letter of Paul to Timothy, Paul will give Timothy and those he is pastoring a few final charges or exhortations. And we will quickly notice that what is motivating these exhortations is also this outlook of what lies ahead, an outlook to the future, specifically to eternity and what awaits us as believers in Christ. It's an outlook that is based on eternity future when faith becomes sight and we, once and for all time, stand before our King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul is trying to help Timothy realize that while the dramatic situations and conflicts and strife within the local church at Ephesus seem like they need all of his immediate attention, what really will assist him is to keep his mind set on the eternal future. In so doing, he will know how to navigate and rise above all that he will encounter in the immediate, all the dramatic situations that we've seen played out in 1 Timothy. And as our reading from Revelation shows, this was something that the church at Ephesus needed. They needed to keep their eyes focused on Christ. The reading from Revelation was written to Ephesus just a few decades later, and again, John was coaxing them, keep your eyes on Christ, remember your first love. John was echoing the same call to them to cast their eyes upon Christ and his reign and his return. In this letter of 1 Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy to endure, to persevere until that future day when he will stand before Christ and all will be made right. And so this is how he will close the letter. And so I've entitled the sermon this morning, A Closing Call to Persevere Until Christ's Return. A closing call to persevere until Christ's return. And I've seen this as a pastor, as I pastor the church. This need to call us to persevere is huge for every one of us. Because it is quite often the case that new believers are very passionate, aren't we? When we first meet Christ, we have a passion that leads us in a direction. But as time goes on and that passion starts to fade away, kind of like I don't know, romance in a new relationship, we start to get a little bit apathetic. And lo and behold, life creeps in, just like Jesus said it would, where the weeds come and overtake the plant. And so we have to be ones who realize that the call to Christ is not for some emotional passion at the start. It is that. But it's more than that. It's a perseverance until Christ's return. And so Paul will use three calls to end his letter to Timothy, a call First, to godly men and women among the church. 
Second, a call to the rich of this present world. And finally, a call to Timothy himself. So let's read through the full text first, and then we will unpack it piece by piece. Let's read there in 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The first charge or call that Paul gives is a call to the godly to keep fighting for the faith. A call to the godly to keep fighting for the faith. This section flows out of additional charges or calls that you will recall having been already given in chapter 6. At the beginning of chapter 6, and Ryan taught us on this, there was a call to godly servants and how they should work and treat their masters. There was a call to Timothy to teach good doctrine and to fight false teachers. And then there was a call to the Christian poor to put their hope in God, and that gets us all the way through verse 10. Verse 11 then begins with, But as for you, O man of God, Commentators are split here on whether or not this is a statement directly to Timothy, the man of God, or whether it is more of a statement to anyone that would listen that desired to be godly, to anyone within the church, so to speak. The but at the beginning tells us that this is a contrast to the groups discussed thus far, almost as if to say to the men of the church and probably to the women as well, if you want to be godly, you have a specific call. In other words, the man of God is to be radically different than those who are quarrelsome, or puffed up, or discontent, or tempted in sin. And what is that call? Well, he breaks it down into five parts. And there are going to be a number of lists that I'm going to give you this morning, because that is Paul's uh, modus operandi here in this, this letter. And this first one that he gives is the charge to the man or woman of God. He breaks it down into five parts. First, he says, flee these things. Flee uh, the things that have already been stated. The godly man or woman does not waste their time dancing around sinful attitudes or behaviors. 
dancing around with false teachers as if they are not destructive. Instead, the godly man or woman flees. The word means to escape, to run away. Think about the word flee. If your house were on fire, would you meander? Would you wander? Would you slowly mosey? Or would you flee? There's a giant bear in front of you. Would you meander? Would you wander? Or would you flee? The Bible casts sin and those who are false teachers as destructive. And we're supposed to flee. There's a very active refusal in the life of the godly man or woman to allow sinfulness to have any part, even a moment, in their presence. Second, Paul contrasts the fleeing from sin with a pursuit, a pursuit of righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. With the same vigor and effort, the godly man or woman is to turn from sin and instead run towards Christ and his character and the outpouring of these qualities by the Holy Spirit in their life. Third, Paul uses the command to actively fight the good fight of the faith. And this serves as the bookend to what was initially stated in 1 Timothy 1.18. Remember this, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight of faith. Wage the good warfare. To fight for the faith, not just accept it, let it sit in your brain, believe it, but to fight on its behalf. Fourth, Paul commands Timothy to take hold of, notice, the eternal life. You have the faith. There is one faith. People have asked me many times, Hans, you seem to to talk about the faith or being a Christian in this very tight sense, as if there's very small route of being in the faith or being a Christian. And my response is, I don't talk about it that way. Jesus does. Right? There is a narrow gate. There is the faith and the eternal life to which we are called. Again, this is not a passive activity or one in which he simply states that we're to wait to receive it, but one in which there is an active pursuit. This is the conundrum of the Christianity that we uh, believe. It is all the work of Christ in our life, even the work to take hold. And yet, from our earthly plane, it requires action. It is God who gives us the empowerment, but we are the ones who participate in that empowerment. And fifth, in verse 14, Paul charges Timothy with keeping the commandment unstained and free from reproach. And this is a call to holiness and accountability in protecting the witness of the Christian church in Ephesus and through Timothy's own life or the godly man or woman's own life. Now, friends, notice with me that these are all extremely active responses. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold, keep, or the other meaning of that is to guard or protect. Friend, are you waiting 
for a certain emotion to overtake you before you act with vigor, to pursue Christ and fight against the kingdom of darkness and for the kingdom of light? Are you passive in your Christianity? I think Paul knows our tendency to become apathetic and passive and even self-deluded. It's been said that there is no passive Christian walk. You are either growing in closeness with Christ or you are slowly fading away. And Paul was encouraging Timothy to make every effort to pursue Christ. Brothers, sisters, are you making every effort in your life to pursue Christ? Now, this is such a weighty topic that Paul reminds Timothy what is at stake, and he uses three motivations. He uses three motivations. The first of which is that there's a confession noted in both verses 12 through 13. It's our mutual confession, the confession of all that proclaim to be Christians, as well as the confession of Christ. The first confession is the confession given by Timothy, and the second given by Christ. Paul does not say what the confession is. He assumes that the readers, uh, specifically Timothy, know what it means. With Christ, though, he notes that it was the testimony given before Pontius Pilate. The most obvious statement this could be referring to is Jesus' messianic identification that he gave in Mark 15 too. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, are you the Messiah, the Christ? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Now, the wording in our English is kind of odd, but here Jesus is definitely claiming in the affirmative that he is indeed the Messiah and the King. And so we must assume that Paul had this same statement in mind when he is referring to Timothy's confession as well, that Jesus is Savior and Lord, that he is the Messiah that's been awaited since the beginning of time. So Paul is reminding Timothy of the core and genesis of his faith to help him push onward. Friends, if we proclaim that Jesus is Lord and King, those words mean something, don't they? They don't just mean a belief system or an ideology. They mean an active lifestyle that we submit to him. Second, Paul uses the Old Testament principle that two witnesses are required to provide testimony against someone who has been charged with a crime. But here it's not a crime, but a charge to pursue godliness. Notice that he says this. He says, I charge you, verse 13, in the presence of God, this is the Father, the Ancient of Days, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. He says, I charge you in their presence to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here it's not a crime, but a charge to pursue godliness. And he uses the two witnesses Pretty good witnesses, don't you think? God the Father and God the Son. In essence, he is being reminded, Timothy, God is your authority and the one to whom you will one day answer. There is no hiding. All things will become open and transparent before the Lord God on that day. There is no negotiating. Christ is the one to whom we will all answer at the end of days. This is a truth that cannot be pushed aside or reasoned away. The Bible claims it, and so it demands 
a response. It demands either a response of blatant rebellion or a realization that we are created to bend the knee to our God. And so we pursue righteousness. There will be accountability to the God who judges, and he will either be to us in the last day a benevolent, merciful Savior who opens his arms wide to us in our humility, recognizing that it is by his death and resurrection alone that we can be in his presence. Or he will be the sovereign judge who shows us all that we have done in rebellion against him and rightfully, rightly gives us an eternity isolated from him in eternal damnation. It will happen. The question is, what have you decided? How have you responded to this truth? I pray that you respond in accepting his merciful gift so that he can be your benevolent king. Third, Paul uses the motivator of eternity. And this is what I was describing in the introduction. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, take hold of eternal life. Look at the end of verse 14 into 15. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the phrase after that, which he will display at the proper time. Friends, Jesus was not destroyed when he died. He rose from the grave. He appeared to dozens and dozens of witnesses. He was viewed ascending into heaven by men willing to give their life to attest to the fact. Don't you think if he really didn't do that, that this, the moment where they were about to be killed, they'd be like, oh, April Fool's, nope. No, they saw it and they were willing to give their lives for it. He lives. Jesus lives and he intercedes and rules from the right hand of the Father, waiting until the fullness of his plan is complete to make his enemies submit to his rule. And on that day that only the Father knows, all that we see and know will be brought to an end. Judgment will occur and a new heaven and earth will be established and all eternity future will continue forward under the righteous rule of God. If we do not look ahead to this point, but instead keep our eyes trained on what is directly in front of us, we will suddenly come to that judgment day as a car would to a brick wall, and our destruction will be great. If we look ahead to Christ's return and judgment, instead, though, we will embrace Christ as king, and this truth will set our trajectory and path in a way that is wise and true and good now in the immediate and on into eternity. As Paul is contemplating this reality and truth, as he's thinking about this motivation of that day of judgment and resurrection into eternal life, he can't help but break into spontaneous praise, a doxology, as if it was meant for the end of the letter, but he just can't seem to help his spontaneous praise. And so as we read this doxology, this next portion, Let's let this truth wash over us as we set our eyes towards Christ, towards the one who is God. Here's what he says. First, he says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. The blessed and only sovereign. Then he says, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor 
and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, if we read this, we think to ourselves, is he talking about the Father or the Son? And the answer is yes. Just as we'll see in Revelation, Jesus is God, and yet he is the Son. The Father is God, and yet he is the Father. The Holy Spirit is God, and yet he is the Holy Spirit. It is the Trinity, and we cannot comprehend. It is a beautiful thing to behold, and we won't understand it this side of heaven. But first, God is the blessed and only sovereign. Let this sink in for a minute. He is the only sovereign. The Greek word for sovereign is dunastes. It's the origin of our word dynasty. So if you are a LeBron James fan or a Lakers fan and you think that was a dynasty, no, there's only one blessed and only sovereign, right? There's only one dynasty. There's only one king. It refers to lordship, power, and rule, and there is no authority except that which comes from the ultimate ruler and authority, God himself. Every ruler, every king, every president, every Caesar, every pharaoh, every UN secretary, every governor, every legislator, every mayor, every judge, every officer, every husband, every father, every elder, every pastor will one day stand in ultimate judgment, waiting to hear if they stewarded well the authority given them by God. There is no authority except that which comes from the blessed only sovereign. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord. He is the only sovereign, the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords. And why this is so powerful is what a breathtaking truth to behold when in the same understanding He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant in his son, being born in the likeness of men and humbled by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross so that our sins, your sins, my sins, they might be forgiven and we might be able to behold his glory in love. Friends, who are we Who am I that the blessed and only sovereign would regard such a wretch as me, as us? What good news. How could we not respond in falling flat on our face before him in worship and submission that the blessed and only sovereign, the one who would be completely justified in destroying us, did everything to save us? Second, He alone has immortality. No life can uh, exist except that which is from the immortal source of life, the one that knows no death or possibility of destruction, the one who alone is outside of creation, and yet the very life and breath of that creation. He has no beginning and no end. He has always existed and will always exist. And it is by his will that we live and move and have our very being in existence. Our world believes it can go on without God. But without him, all material nature ceases in an instant. He alone has immortality. He is perfect in existence, perfect in communal nature of the Trinity, perfect in every way. He did not need anything 
especially to create you or me. And yet in love, he authored a world into existence. And when that world rebelled against him and marred his great creation, he foresaw a way of salvation, redemption, and reconciliation that he alone could accomplish in his grace and mercy. We are not worthy to receive his breath of life, and yet he has given it to us freely, knowing we would sin against him. He has shared his immortality with us. Third, he dwells in unapproachable light. He is inaccessible to the unholy and the sinful. Friends, do you understand that God is so perfect and so holy that his very nature of holiness would cause us to be destroyed in his presence? We would just cease to exist. And yet, even though he would be just and true to cast us off and stay isolated from us or destroy us, he condescended to his creation. He entered into it in the flesh so that he might know our pain and temptation. He willingly offered himself up so that we might have a bridge that extends to the Father in reconciliation. And because of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has proven that we will one day stand at the foot of the throne of God, welcomed to be one with him. The work of Christ in death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and reign over the church has paved a way for us to have access to the Father. And the veil that kept us out of his presence the veil that was made by our very own sin has been torn in two, and we now know our God intimately through the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? amen. Fourth, Paul speaks of the fact that God is invisible. Beyond the ability to apprehend or see him, he is so completely beyond his creation that for us to interact with him, he has to condescend to show his glory his afterglow, or he has to come in an image or reflection or perfect imprint. Again, it should strike us with awe that there are no requirements that he make himself known to us, and yet he desires to do so freely. In every way, through his word, through his creation, through his incarnate son, through his incarnate church, through his Holy Spirit, he has made himself known to you and I. How can we ever Hold him in derision, as if he has not done enough to show himself to us. If you do not know Jesus Christ today, if you have not lain your life down in submission to him, he has done everything to call you to himself. Don't wait for something more. Submit to him today as Lord and Savior. It is to this God that we give honor and glory and praise and to whom we submit in eternal dominion. Amen, amen, amen. This is our God. Paul gives this doxology as an exclamation point on the end of the motivations that should push Timothy to forge ahead and fight for the faith. And God gives this same word to you and I so that we might lift our eyes above the chaos and temptation that ensnares us in the immediate and see God high and lifted up on his throne, fully sovereign, waiting patiently and wisely to bring his plan to conclusion. Friends, we can trust him. We can give our lives to him. We can give our lives to one another in trust of him. For he is good in ways that are beyond our comprehension. 
man of God, woman of God, today, I want to encourage you to keep fighting for the fight of the faith. Do not grow weary, for in due season you will reap an eternal reward. You are promised it. You cannot comprehend or imagine what you will reap. This light momentary affliction is but a breath that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So look to the things that are unseen, for this will all fade away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, this week I charge each of you to memorize this doxology. Memorize this doxology. It is short. It is easy to memorize. And each morning this week, and if it so works for you into the future, wake from your sleep and pronounce it out loud to God in prayer. God, you are the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You alone have immortality. You alone dwell in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen you or can see you as you are fully. To you be honor and eternal dominion. Grant me this week to lift my eyes from my circumstances so that I may grasp even a crumb of this truth, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. Speak this doxology out loud. This eternal view of God and his plan is one that will motivate us to walk in godliness in a way we never have before. Well, this eternal view of God and his plan seems to cause Paul to be reminded of one other group that needs guidance and correction. And so he leaves the doxology, and next we see as he closes, we see a call to the rich to place their hope in God in verses 17 through 19. A call to the rich to place their hope in God. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You'll notice the same statement, take hold of that which is truly life. Our study thus far in this letter shows that there was some interaction between the false teachers and the wealthy in the church that was affecting the church negatively. You see, people with wealth oftentimes have power in the church. It shouldn't be that way, according to the book of James, but sometimes it is. We're not exactly sure, but it is enough that Paul feels the need to coach Timothy on guiding the wealthy in the church because looking at some of the statements made earlier, we could easily say, oh, it is uh, sinful or wrong to be wealthy, but Paul isn't stating that at all. He's stating that the love of money, that the idolatry of wealth, these are the things that lead to all sorts of evils. And so Paul coaches. He wants to coach those who are wealthy and say to them, you have been given this as a gift. How do you use it? Now, in our culture, I've found that many of us in the Western church, the American church, skip right past this because we say, well, I'm not wealthy. But friends, even for an American, hear this, even for an American at the income poverty level, For one person in our country, even if you are in poverty, you are wealthier than 83% of the global population. may not feel that way, but it's true. If you are a household making $60,000 a year or more, you are in the wealthiest 1% of people in the world. So this section is definitely for us. Amen? 
We said again, if you make $60,000 or more as a household, you are in the wealthiest 1% of wealth in the world. And if you say, Hans, where is that? Go look up any wealth calculator out there on the internet, and you'll see very quickly that we are the wealthy, even if it doesn't feel like it in our day-to-day. Paul quickly employs the same tactic of looking beyond the here and now, and he says, don't be haughty, thinking that with wealth you have sovereignty or control or power or comfort or security. Those things only come from the God who allowed you the wealth you have. To put our hope in riches is to put our hope in something that is uncertain. The religion and worship of wealth takes as much faith, if not more, than any part of Christianity. If you truly think about credit cards, electronic transactions, Bitcoin, the fact that someone will take a piece of paper with Andrew Jackson's face on it and give you exactly $20 of goods and services, any of this, it is all vapor that could fly away in a moment. All of it, all it takes is for someone to decide that they will not respond to the mutual agreement that a certain good or service matches the wealth you and I believe it to be worth. That's all it takes. Just look at Venezuela. Once that system of mutual agreement and faith deteriorates, it all crumbles. Do any of you remember the combination of 9-11's effect on the markets, the Enron scandal, and the subprime mortgage crisis of the early 2000s? Some of the people I knew who had lived their entire life banking on the fact that their retirement investments would be secure lost almost everything and were so far into retirement that they had nowhere to run. Friends, it could easily happen again. Open up the newspaper. All it takes, again, is for mutual agreement and faith among the people who are practicing it to deteriorate. Does that sound like anything going on right now? And so this is why Paul said earlier in chapter 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Friends, it is not guaranteed to any American or to the United States of America that we be the wealthiest, most economically stable country in the world. It's never been guaranteed, and it could go away in a moment. Where do we put our hope? Contentment in Christ and what he has provided and will provide, not striving for wealth in our own power, is the key to peace and joy. For it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, and it is good to enjoy it. Paul is not saying you should be ashamed of enjoying the practical, material things you have. He's not saying that. God wants us as a good father to enjoy the good material gifts. And so if you enjoy the wealth that you have, there is not sin innately in that. But the question is, where do you put your hope? Is it in godliness with contentment, or is it in your material possessions? For it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so no matter where you are, friends, no matter where I am, the question is, do we exist in contentment? Do you pray for contentment? Do you thank God for the blessings you do have before you ask for more? Do you remember to thank him at all? Do you thank him for your meals? There is a reason that we as a church are purposeful in our community groups to focus in on certain types of prayer, such as thanksgiving and praise, because we often skip right to asking for more before we ever thank him for what we already have. Mission, let's be a people that thank God far more than we petition him. 
What a conviction that is for me personally. I hope it is for you as well. And if you are one of the few upon whom God has placed the talent for making money and growing in wealth, remember that it is not self-built, it's God-given. To be in this country, to inherit the wealth or opportunity of generations past, all of this is God-given wealth. And God has done so so that you and I might be his incarnate hands and feet and use what we have to do good. When I talk to pastors over in Burkina Faso, a lot of times they'll say, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving of your wealth over to us in in the Burkina church. We, We just are so thankful to you. And man, it is really, really uncomfortable because I just tell them, do not thank me. Do not thank our church. Our church has nothing to do with it. It's simple obedience, and we could probably do a whole lot more. We're probably extremely ungenerous in what we give. The reality is, is we are simply a conduit. Just like back in the day, Paul said to the Philippian church or the Corinthian church, hey, can you help out the church in Jerusalem? It wasn't that the church in Jerusalem was subpar and the church in Philippi was better. Don't convince yourself that the American church is more blessed or in the blessing of God because we have wealth. We are simply the conduit, and if we do not act generously, it will get taken away very quickly. And so what we have, we need to use to be the incarnate hands and feet to do good, as Paul says. And this is not just any good, with no regard for wisdom or God's reign. This is not just any good to make us feel better about ourselves. This is to act in ways that are submitted to his reign and plan and ultimately to forward his gospel. Go back a few weeks and listen to the sermon on instructions for benevolent care for the vulnerable in the church. And what you'll see is that Paul is not speaking here about a willy-nilly charitable philanthropy. He's talking about things that will contribute to the kingdom of the one true God and furthering of his one true gospel. What is the motivation behind being generous and rich in good works and being ready to share that Paul gives? Well, it's that it's going to go before us into eternity. There is a mentality and a foresight, again, looking down the road that this life won't end at death, but it will move on into eternity. It will store up treasure for us in the future so we can take hold of that which is truly life. And so great, we think, right? How many of you have heard the song, In My Father's House, right? How many, anybody? Back from the, when was that? The 90s, right? Everybody rocked out to that one, along with our DC talk, with our CD players. Great, we think. I'll put it ahead and I will be wealthy in heaven. Oh, it's going to be great to have my mansion on the streets paved with gold and crowns in my, or jewels in my crown. There we go. Not crowns in my jewels. Jewels in my crown. But friends, these images are often used and they miss the point. The mansion spoken of in the old King James is more rightly translated, in my father's dwelling place are many rooms. It speaks of intimate relationship between God's people. Places for those who have been brought in as family to dwell in intimate relationship with him and with one another. The crowns spoken of throughout the New Testament are not for our wealth or for us to look good taking selfies in heaven, but they are pictured in Revelation as items we can cast down at the feet of Jesus in worship of his glory, because guess what? We have nothing else. And the imagery of jewels and precious metals used throughout Revelation speak and symbolize the fact that the glory of God will be so satisfying that there is no wealth that we will desire otherwise. 
So what is it that we're actually passing into eternity then? Well, it's praise to God and the joy of having one another in covenant unity for eternity. In the book of Philippians, Paul calls those that he has discipled and pastored and loved his crowns and his joy. By discipling the people, he's passing something on into eternity that he knows will be there waiting for him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells those he has discipled, pastored, and loved that they are precious living stones being used to build a spiritual house in which Christ dwells. We are building up the kingdom of God made up of him ruling from his benevolent throne surrounded by his thankful citizens. And you and I and our brothers and sisters throughout time and space are what will be in heaven. It's so odd to me when I see people doing philanthropy thinking that there will just be some random riches in heaven. The reason we do philanthropy, the reason that we love men and women, that's what philanthropy means, okay, phileo, love, anthropos, men, women, right? The reason we do philanthropy is we want them to be in heaven with us. The way to pass on riches into heaven is to give praise to God who will be there and to disciple one another in love into eternal life because that's who else will be there. Praise and loving service of one another, discipleship. This is how we pass those riches on. And so we, whom the Bible calls rich, by our generosity and good works, are preaching the gospel, assisting others to do the same, and showing a love to brothers and sisters which show the world that we are disciples of the risen Christ. It is in this, not in a focus of storing up more plastic and metal and wood and brick, that we take hold of that which is truly life. The very same thing that Paul commanded of any godly man or woman in verse 12, an active response in the use of our wealth in giving honor to God and serving his church and missionaries. It's all part of the natural response to God's reign over us. Again, take joy and enjoy the good things God has given you. He is not telling you to, to step into poverty just because, to take a vow of poverty. He's a good father who wants to give good gifts, but where is your focus? Where is your hope? Where is your drive? Is it to store up treasure in heaven? Or is it to store up treasure for your kingdom in the here and now? And in so doing, when we store up treasures in heaven, we place our hope in God, not in wealth. And we're called to place our hope in God, not in that which he provides. To do so is to worship the creation, not the creator. Well, Paul speaks first to the holy man or woman of God. He speaks next to the rich in this present age. And third, he issues a final call to Timothy to protect the gospel. And in so doing, he passes that call on to us. A final call to Timothy to protect the gospel. Having done a doxology in praise of God, Paul finishes with a succinct charge and close. He says to Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now this simple statement surrounds the gospel, the calling, the faith, the good doctrine, the talents, and the role that Timothy has been given. And friends, each of us have those same things. We each have the gospel if we are followers of Christ. We each have the calling if we have been converted. We each have the faith and the good doctrine, the talents and the role that we have been given within the local church. We've been given these same things. God has been generous to each of us to call us, to open our eyes to the gospel, to give us the faith 
by the Holy Spirit to give us the good doctrine of his word and to give us talents and gifts and a role within his church. It's all God's generosity to us. And so this same charge is given to you and I as it was given to Timothy and the saints of the local church at Ephesus. We are to guard and protect and fight for the deposit entrusted to us. It's a deposit towards the treasure we will receive in eternity. At the end of our member conversations in this church, we ask the question of the person who's interviewing to become a member, are you ready to co-labor with the rest of the members of this body and the heavy responsibility of defending the gospel preaching and witness of this church. We don't ask this flippantly. We don't ask it out of rote tradition. We ask it because entering into covenant membership is a mutual agreement to take on responsibility to defend the gospel preaching and gospel witness of this church and to co-labor in the proclamation of that gospel. There is no room in this church for the members of this church to say, someone else will do it. We did not make up this charge at this church. This is the charge to every brother and sister in Christ. By accepting Christ as the Lord of your life, you have declared your willingness to give your life in defense of the gospel and good doctrine that flows from it. Paul finishes the letter the same way he began it. He says, Timothy, I urge you to defend the gospel and its witness in Ephesus. And so I say to you today, in the apostolic tradition handed down by the word of God, mission fellowship, I urge you to defend the gospel and its witness in Salem, Oregon. I urge you to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Well, Paul moves on from there, and he again revisits the fact that errant doctrine is everywhere and coming from every direction. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. He's saying people are swerving from the faith in Christ because they're holding on to these things falsely so-called knowledge. This could be early seeds of what became known as Gnosticism, the root of which gnosis in the Greek means knowledge. But I think Paul is using it more broadly here than just this singular cult of Gnostic mysticism. You see, when a false religion grows, it creates a group of people within it who believe they have special knowledge and special abilities. A hierarchy of spiritual power and holiness grows. People who can do certain things or have certain words of knowledge or certain tongues, they're suddenly holier than other people. But this is very, the very thing Paul is fighting against in multiple letters in the New Testament. In the King James, this word knowledge is translated as science. But it's not science that Paul is fighting against. He's not anti-intellectual. It is against those who would creep in the church and say, I, uh, I have the true knowledge that you need to understand in order to truly be godly. Friends, all that we need is the very word that is in our hands. The elders in this church who teach the word, we don't have some special bat phone that we, that we answer. We don't have some special copy of the Bible. This is the same Bible, if you have the ESV, that you have in your hands and that you have access to. We do not have a special knowledge. All of us have what we need. All that we need is the words that is in our hand and the core gospel that it proclaims. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his atonement, his ascension, and his enthronement. That is the gospel and the knowledge that we proclaim, and that is the power that forms and empowers the church. And it's in this truth that Paul is able to finish and say to Timothy, grace be with you. The grace of the gospel message and the work of Jesus Christ is all that we need. If we hold fast to the truth of God's word as it was declared in this Bible, and what we have heard Paul proclaim, we will be founded in truth and we will be able to fulfill the call to steward the household of God well. In the introduction to 1 Timothy a few months ago, I said these words. As we step into the first letter written to Timothy, let us as a church repent of our resistance to authority, order, and sacrifice. And let's be a church full of people that answer the call to steward the household of God well. As we now bring this letter to a close, I want to see if we have done this. I want you to ask yourselves silently in your own mind and hearts, Have we repented of our resistance to authority, repented of our resistance to order and sacrifice? Or have we pushed even harder against the goads and shown ourselves to be rebels in sheep's clothing? Have we embraced Paul's call for order in the household of God as it is expressed in the local church? Or have we continued in the belief that spontaneity is how the Spirit only moves? Have we been challenged to grow in our character so that we as individuals might step into roles of leadership in this church, to love it and sacrifice for it as Christ did for his church? Or are we still in the mentality that someone else will do it? And have we stepped into the path laid out for Timothy and all who desire godliness so that we too can take hold of eternal life? This morning, are we hearing and answering the call that Paul has given to Timothy to give to the church? And specifically, have we heard and are we answering the call to persevere until Christ's return? Friends, we do not go through the Bible just to call ourselves a church. We go through the Bible to learn from it and be transformed by it. And hopefully 1 Timothy has done that for you because it's done it for me. And every Sunday along the way, whether I'm the one speaking and doing the studying or whether it's one of our other very capable elders or pastors, I have been deeply convicted that we as a church are secure in the love and grace of Jesus. And yet in that security, we have a long way to go. Amen. And we need to continue pressing forward, taking hold of that eternal life. Friends, this morning, I hope that you have been reinvigorated to cast your eyes upon Jesus and his plan of salvation and soon return. If you do, you will be amazed at how clear all that lies in front of you becomes. May the Lord give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. Amen.